This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Welcome to The Whole Story. I'm Anderson Cooper. While war has raged in Ukraine for more than a year and conflict has once again broken out in the Middle East, there is another often overlooked battle happening right now in Sudan. In April, a paramilitary group called the Rapid Support Forces, or RSF, began fighting the Sudanese army for control of the country. Now, so far, thousands of people have been killed and more than five million have been displaced, according to the UN. That means on average, roughly 30,000 people are fleeing their homes every day. Among those lucky enough to make it out have been the family of CNN's chief international investigative correspondent, Nima Al-Bagir. She's not been back to her home country in more than a year after RSF-linked authorities issued a sealed indictment against her because of her reporting on them. So what is motivating the RSF and how are they able to sustain such a large and drawn out conflict? Very few Western news organizations have been allowed into Sudan since the war began, but Nima and her team made it back inside. And over the next hour, she takes us on a deeply personal journey. She sees for herself what this power struggle has done to her country. Some of what you're about to see in this hour may be disturbing. of my career as a journalist, I've covered war. CNN. We're CNN. And the pain and devastation it inflicts. You just really get hit by the, the desolation, the devastation. But this war, this pain, it's personal. I've been covering Sudan for over 20 years. First as a young reporter at the very start of my career. Then, as an experienced journalist, witnessing a popular revolution overthrow the country's long-standing dictator. Seeing people I love taste democracy. Only to watch as military leaders wrenched back control. And mourning their loss alongside them. Now some of those very same military leaders are fighting each other for the ultimate prize to rule Sudan, alone, unchallenged. Sudan is where I was born, but it's also where my family were forced to leave only a few weeks ago. Most are trying to flee, but we need to get in. We need to see for ourselves what's been happening. You can't just fly to the capital anymore. We need to be creative. The fighting is focused on two areas, the capital Khartoum and the west of the country in Al Jinena, Darfur. The only way in for us is to travel to South Sudan, starting in the small village of Rank, which has been hosting refugees. From here, we need to cross the border and try to get to Khartoum. But again, nothing is straightforward. Much of the capital is occupied by the paramilitary group, the Rapid Support Forces, better known as the RSF. They don't want me or any Western journalists to document their atrocities. So we'll have to take an 800-mile journey northeast to Port Sudan, where we've been promised a flight to the capital. But Khartoum tells us only part of the story of the tragedy unfolding in Sudan. 
Troubling stories from Al-Jinana in Sudan's western Darfur region are trickling out. Stories of systematic rape, ethnic cleansing, and now even slavery. Shedding light on this tragedy for the world to see is what's pushing me to go back. But it's also my home, and where many of my extended family still live. I haven't seen them in a long time. I want to see how they're doing, if they're all right, and how the people of Sudan are coping in the face of this terrible civil war. Our neighbor was shot. It's hard, though. We're here just two months into the fighting, and the world has already turned its back on those impacted. Our journey begins in Rank, where many of the 2.8 million people who have fled the war in Sudan crossed over. Desperate, tired, and hungry, many end up here. A holding camp run by aid agencies near Sudan's border with South Sudan. There are around 15,000 people in the camp on any given day, and no one here knows how long they'll have to stay. Aid agencies say they're trying to help, but there's not enough food, not enough clean water, and not enough medicine. What you see behind me here is one of only two meal distributions a day. This is the first time anybody in this camp has gotten to eat this morning, and it's already around 11 o'clock. It's chaotic. It's um, painful to watch because the reality is that most of those people back there are not going to get to eat. They're going to queue with their empty bowls and plates and they may not be able to take anything back to their families. Every single day a child dies here in this camp and it's because of these conditions. Absolutely awful. Most of these people, they have been here for almost these two months. Queer Dahok has been at the camp for a month now, and he stepped up as a community leader for the people here. Back home in Khartoum, he was a high school headmaster, teaching English literature. Our people are suffering mostly from diarrhea. They are dying every day with the diarrhea. They are dying every day, and night, mostly children. We have never spent a day without losing a child here. And yet life goes on. It must. People are having to figure out how to survive and look after their families without knowing what their futures hold. There's one family over there where the mother gave birth just five days ago here in the conditions that you can see around us. So we're going to go over there and check in on her. They want me to hold him. Bismillah, bismillah, bismillah. MashaAllah, 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 MashaAllah. This is David Adut. His mother, Bakhita, says that she named him David. That was her choice. It's a name she loves. And his middle name is after his grandfather. MashaAllah. Asharayon, MashaAllah. This is a very, it's going to be a tall child. Like your leg? MashaAllah, MashaAllah. 
Marito wanted to show us this. This is all she has to feed uh, David from because she can't produce her own milk. She's not been able to breastfeed. It's been 10 days now. So she's really, really worried about the baby because this is what little formula they were able to find from them here. It's gone. While Bajita fights for her newborn, another young mother grieves the loss of her only son. A simple grave. It's all they can do now to bring some dignity in these harsh conditions. The family can barely speak. There are no words to describe the pain of the loss of a child. The only visible markings that this is a cemetery, a few rudimentary wooden posts, and the freshly disturbed piles of earth that cover this desolate field, so far from loved ones' homes. We need to go into Sudan and see for ourselves how the country is being affected by the conflict. We've been hearing horror stories of war crimes in the capital. The city has been devastated. Some of my family have stayed behind. I'm desperate to see them, and with a bit of luck, to go in and see my family home, which has been taken over by the RSF, a paramilitary army gone rogue. It's time we cross the border into war-torn Sudan. We are heading north on a long and perilous journey into Sudan. Very few Western media organizations have been allowed in since the war broke out between the Sudanese army and the RSF, killing untold thousands and displacing millions. We're trying to get to the capital, Khartoum, one of two major areas where the fighting is concentrated. Khartoum is also where my family home is, but it's too dangerous to drive there directly, so we're having to travel northeast to circumnavigate the RSF and get to Medani, the closest city with a Sudan army presence. We've been warned to stay on the main roads to avoid any checkpoints controlled by the RSF. They don't want us in Sudan. I've got history with them, especially with their leader. This is Commander Mohammed Hamdan. Mohammed Hamdan Degalum a former warlord better known as Himeddi, now commander of the RSF. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, as a young journalist, I filmed with Himeddi and his men when he was identified by eyewitnesses as a leader of the infamous Arab militia group, called by their victims Janjaweed, devils on horseback. <laughs> the Janjaweed became notorious for terrorizing non-Arab tribes and committing such heinous acts towards them that in 2007, the United States declared the killing spree a genocide. This war wasn't just about territory. It was also about ethnicity. And Hemeti's story doesn't end there. That well-worn playbook that Hemeti and the Janjaweed learned back then, terrorizing, raping and killing, 
is now being used again in the same region, Darfur. Only this time the Janjaweed are an official fighting force, the RSF, who are currently in a battle against the Sudanese army for dominance. Today, as you can see from this aerial view, the displacement, the killing, the murder of those from non-Arab tribal groupings is worse than it has ever been. Towns and villages razed to the ground, disintegrated, disappeared from the map. If Hemeti wins, there is a chance Sudan may never know peace in my lifetime, and I, like so many others, may never see home again. But for now, we've managed to cross the border. It's taken us about three, four hours just to get three, four kilometers up the road and to cross from the Republic of South Sudan into the Republic of Sudan. But we have done it and we're across the border and Honestly, I can't quite believe it. <laughs> it, feels, it feels pretty amazing to be home. We were asked to swap vehicles um, from the pickup trucks we were in to what's supposed to be a little bit of a more um, low-profile car with blacked-out windows. Uh, however, um, it, it's low-profile, but they're blaring Sudanese pop music. I think you can hear it in the background. Spirits are high and everyone's feeling good. We can hardly believe it, we've made it into Sudan. But the music quickly gets tiresome, and a trip that should have been a maximum of seven hours is now going on and on. The longer we stay on the road, the more vulnerable we are to bandits. And as the sun sets, our situation becomes more precarious. To make matters worse, comms are intermittent, so it's difficult to pinpoint our position. I wouldn't say we're lost, but... I know we're headed north, so we're going in the right direction. Whether or not this is the road that we need to be on is another one. I'm going to try and have a look at the map, actually. We've just been held at every, almost every single checkpoint, despite all the assurances we were given. It's now 10 o'clock at night, and we, we're still hour and a half before our destination. Every moment that we are delayed, it gets more and more dangerous. And delayed again, and again, and again. It's past 11 o'clock at night and our producer Barbara is trying to find the team a place to stay. Our hotel reservation was cancelled. We're, um, we're four people, so even, yeah, even if it's like one room and we all sleep on the floor, it doesn't matter at this stage. Luckily, we managed to get in touch with a distant cousin of my father's, who allows us to bed down in her new, not yet furnished home. The team is exhausted. We need to get some sleep. This is Wad Madani, the closest city to Khartoum. Its population has swelled by thousands since the war began. Madani has always been a major city. In fact, it was the cradle of Sudan's independence movement from the British. Now it's being called upon once more, and, and this time it is to provide safe haven for the Sudanese fleeing the country's capital. 
Dust, pollution, heat, just utter chaos. For now, the markets are full, but prices have skyrocketed as people live with the constant threat of an RSF invasion. In the market, we meet Iman from Khartoum. She arrived in Medini only a few days ago. The violence she tells us is indiscriminate. Our neighbor was shot. So my parents said to us, we have to come from Medini because it's not safe here anymore. So that what brought me here. I, didn't, I actually didn't want to come here. But life is life. Everyone is suffering from this world. And it's been terrible. Some of the onlookers begin telling the young people to not speak to us, to not sell out their country to foreigners. We actually had to walk Iman and her friend Sufyan a little bit away from that crowd that was starting to gather. And it was really clear that there is a tension. There's a tension between those in Medeni who've seen their standard of life get more expensive, who are now suddenly having to push their way through traffic like this almost every day, and the people who are coming from Khartoum. It's not that people don't want to host people, it's just that they're feeling those consequences in their lives. Every Sudanese is feeling the effects of this conflict in some shape or form. Back at the house where we're staying, I meet someone I love dearly. My uncle, Baba Arif. I haven't seen him for about a year since a sealed indictment was issued against me by RSF-linked authorities in retaliation for a previous investigation. I'm going to ask you the question that everybody wants to know. Are you going to leave? Leave where? Sudan. Why, why should I leave? Are you going to let us My evacuate question, you? Why should I leave? Because it's, it's dangerous. Come on. Yani. If war happens and I happen to be in any part of the world, as, as a physician or as a surgeon, I can do some help. If people need it, I'm not going to leave. Why should I leave? I have 50 years of experience in surgery. I leave them? No. Come on. There's, there's, this there's cannot no be. Why, why the whole world is thinking like that? I, I was brought up like this. Think about the others. Whatever you can do to help them, do it. And this war is going to end. And everybody is worried. Sudan is going to, again, again, it's gonna rise. like this is going to happen. We Africans can do that. I, and I am sure. So what do you need? What do you need from the world? The what, world? Yeah, what do you need? You're staying, you're risking your life. First of all, they have to make all the efforts possible to stop the war. We're so proud of you. Okay. We're worried, but we're proud of you. Yeah, it's okay. I understand why he's doing this, but the idea that I'm going to leave him behind is incredibly hard. Still, I am so proud of what he represents. The risks that so many Sudanese are taking to save each other and their country. Baba Arif wants to show us a hospital nearby where some of the medics he's trained are currently working under extreme conditions. There is very little medicine. Even oxygen is running low. The doctors say often they have so little the only thing they can do is try and give people comfort, but there's not much comfort to be found. Outside, we see an inconsolable family. 
Her father has just died of an asthma attack. War doesn't just kill people quickly at the front line. It slowly strangles the rest of the country. We need to get back on the road to see what's happening elsewhere. But before we go, my family has invited us for a get-together. Not everyone here is from Medellin. Most of my family has been displaced. In fact, it's the first time that a lot of us have met one another. But everyone is so familiar. <laughs> She's saying that I look like my aunt who passed away. She was, she was very beautiful. She had um, the tribal markings, uh, the same as the Haiga. Yeah, we're trying to compare her with my dad. I'm doing a family history lesson. <laughs> and of course, it doesn't take long for everyone to start teasing each other. <laughs> Even through the love and laughter, the war is constantly present and very much at the forefront of everyone's minds. They have actually just come from Khartoum. Their house was occupied by the RSF, uh, and he was working at one of the lead, leading industrialist companies in Khartoum. Um, and they've had to come all the way out to, to Medani and all stay here with his wife's mother's family because Khartoum has just been overrun. As the night draws to a close, I feel so blessed. Everyone has stories of people they've lost in the fighting, but they still find a moment to laugh, to enjoy each other, and to be grateful that they are together for another night. It's a reminder of what's at stake here. Khartoum may be where my family is suffering, but we're hearing a new front in the fighting has opened up. An ethnic cleansing campaign unleashed in Darfur is intensifying. The RSF creating a stronghold, a fortress, which could expand into the heart of Africa. How is this paramilitary group sustaining this fight on multiple fronts? Who is behind this? We need answers. It's time to continue our journey to the capital, whatever the risks. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. 
Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All there is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. It's early morning and we're back on the road. We wanted to follow the River Nile north straight into Khartoum, the fastest route in, but it's far too dangerous. The RSF controls a lot of the suburbs going into the city. Sudan's armed forces is offering a flight into Khartoum from Port Sudan, but it's a 600-mile drive away. We have to get there as fast as we can because of the volatility of the conflict. There are small windows of opportunity. If we miss it, we can't get in. But there are already delays. Still about 550k up to Port Sudan, six hours driving time. Big distance. Yeah. Um, we were hoping to be further along. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're going to be driving in dark hours, but you know, it is what it is. We've committed to it now, so we'll go with it. Um, we probably shouldn't hang around here too long. Feedback from the local security is that there may be a, a bit of lawlessness, banditry, that kind of stuff, kind and of we would be considered vulnerable. insecurity. Exactly. It's a massive journey. Sudan is the third largest country in Africa. The closer we get to Port Sudan, where the regular army has more control, the more delays are created by their security. Port Sudan has become the de facto capital of Sudan. So there's a strong military presence. As we travel into the night, we get news of an RSF sleeper cell being discovered in the city. They've locked it down and we can't get in. We've been forced to stop for the night. We'll have to bed down in the open. It's around 2 a.m. and we're being put up by the Sudanese army in a guest house about two hours from Port Sudan. We're gonna spend the night here and try and see what we can do in the morning. Overnight, there was a sandstorm and it's gotten everywhere. James, what time is it? 10.30. We are making calls to see if the security situation has improved in the city so we can get moving. We got the all clear, but we've been diverted through this rugged road. You can see why. With its high vantage points and slow going, it's an easily defendable route into the city. 
checkpoints are becoming more frequent. The security perimeter around the city is tight. But finally, we've arrived in Port Sudan. The historic city of Port Sudan. Built to increase trade in the early 1900s, some of the same traditional methods are still being used. Today they're unloading sacks of sugar. It's always been a key geographical entry point for the region. It's not until you're actually down here on the shoreline that you get a real sense of why Port Sudan matters so much. The goods that they're unloading make their way to the Central African Republic, to Chad, to South Sudan, to Niger, to Mali, all the way extending into Africa. Countries are reliant on Port Sudan. It's an incredibly strategic port for the rest of the world, sitting on the Red Sea and thereby potentially able to control access to the Suez Canal, where any obstruction brings global shipping to its knees. Three years ago, Russian naval warships were docked exactly where we are now. Part of a push by Russia and its proxy militia, Wagner, to extend its influence in the region. Russia has long aspired to a naval base at Port Sudan, a demand Sudan's army has in recent years denied. But the commander of the RSF, Hemeti, has said he would grant, giving Russia an ominous vantage point overlooking the Suez. But there's more to it than that. Sudan has gold, and Russia has been able to exploit it. As we discovered last year in a CNN investigation, their ally, Hemeti, commander of the RSF, has been helping Russia to circumnavigate US sanctions, including those around the war in Ukraine. The quid pro quo, Hemeti has been receiving arms and training from Wagner for years. But today, somehow, all of that seems far away. It's also a vibrant city, where in the evening people find moments to enjoy a breeze from the sea. Tea and sweets, a day before Eid celebrations. People come here to relax, meet family and friends, and unexpectedly, I meet a budding young journalist. How is it like being a What's it like being a It's a bit difficult sometimes, but it's amazing because you get to go to places a lot of people don't get to go and you get to see things for yourself. I have been to Paris. <laughs> In the early morning calm, you would be forgiven for believing that there is no war raging. But only a few months ago, this area was the scene of mass evacuations. Foreigners and dual nationals were evacuated by sea, crossing to the port city of Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. Others, however, Sudanese, were left behind, forgotten. I 
Aida needs life-saving treatment. She fled from Khartoum and has been living in the mosque. The war has infected every bit of society. No one has been left unscathed. I've come to check on a close family friend, Hatim, and his 80-year-old mother. They've recently fled from Khartoum and barely escaped with their lives. I woke up actually with a machine gun pointed to my head. <clears throat> and then they brought my mom. They also had a gun to her head. The RSF has been unleashed. But don't forget, they haven't been in this alone. While we've been in Port Sudan, these pictures emerged. The RSF's key foreign backers, Wagner, mutinying against Russia's military leadership. Could this turn the tide in Sudan? For the moment, there has been little respite in the daily reports of atrocities. We can no longer get to Khartoum. The Sudanese army say it's just too dangerous. And now, we're hearing that violations are near constant in the west of the country, Darfur where the RSF are believed to be expanding their territorial chokehold. Communication networks there have been blocked by the RSF, and it's impossible to get in. The RSF are locking down key towns and cities, but the stories that are getting out are so horrific. It was like a trade. They said to us, these girls are to be sold. You are all slaves. Slavery in 2023. This is what's happening now in Darfur. We need to head out to meet with survivors and eyewitnesses. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. We're heading to the very east of Chad on the border with Sudan. This is a remote and difficult to reach territory. We're on a UN humanitarian aid flight to meet refugees from Darfur. 
survivors and eyewitnesses of terrible atrocities. I was here almost 20 years ago reporting on similar stories of ethnic cleansing. Now I've come back to piece together what's been happening since the war broke out a few months ago to find out who is perpetrating these atrocities. These refugees fled their homes with very little, some with only the clothes on their back. They are at the mercy of the state and the international community for help. These orderly queues that you're seeing here, they don't actually reflect the true reality, which is that people here have not received food for almost two months. And after today, they don't actually know when they're going to receive food again. This is the human cost of the fighting across the border. Look around. Most people here are women, children and the elderly. Survivors tell us many men were killed in Darfur as they fled. Everyone is reliving their trauma. We have nothing here and the Arabs wouldn't let us stay. They beat us into the night. They killed our husbands. We couldn't stay at home. Our children, all they can do is cry. They cry through the day. They cry through the night. Communication in Darfur has been deliberately choked by the ISF. It's been excruciatingly hard to understand exactly what's been going on until now. One by one, survivors come forward wanting to share, to document what has happened to them. I held my five-year-old brother and ran with him to the mosque. The RSF chased us, shooting at us. A bullet hit my brother's head. From within our family, we lost more than 40 men. They said to my father, we're going to rape your daughter in front of you. The RSF said, leave these ones. We will find better ones to sell. These ones, let's rape them. Textbook ethnic cleansing. These are the hallmarks of genocide. We interviewed over a dozen survivors and eyewitnesses who witnessed the abduction of at least 200 other girls. But how many more girls and women have been abducted and enslaved? Through their testimony, we were able to pinpoint key neighborhoods in El Jinena where civilians were targeted and where women were being sold from slave houses. Places like Al Jabal, Al Hilla, and Al Zahra dormitory where survivors say they counted 75 girls abducted in one fell swoop. There is nowhere safe in El Jinena, not even medical centers where women and girls were taken to be raped. We were at home when the Janjaweed came. When they found out we were all women, they took us to the medical complex. There were RSF soldiers outside and they beat me until they forced me into the building. Inside, I saw nine or ten girls some without clothes. They told us they will sell us very cheaply. They said, we kill all the men. We will not leave any black skin here. You have to leave. Get out. They said they will be the only ones to sleep with us, because if we have our own children, our sons will one day take revenge. Ashraqat managed to escape but was recaptured and brought to a different location where she was repeatedly raped. In late June, the state governor of West Darfur, seen here, was kidnapped by the RSF. He was later found executed and his body mutilated. The weeks that followed saw killing sprees by the RSF and their Arab allied militia that many believe amount to one of the worst massacres seen in this region's genocide-scarred history. Survivor after survivor told CNN 
how the RSF spoke of wiping out the African-descended Masalit, who, unlike Himeddi's tribe, claim no Arab heritage. It's this land in Darfur that the RSF are currently occupying, which the Masalit claim as their ancestral land, part of a fertile landmass that the commander of the RSF, Himeddi, has been strategically looking to secure for the last 20 years, changing the demographics from African to Arab. The purpose? Creating through alliances an Arab fortress extending through the African Sahel region, for not only his tribe, but for all the nomadic Arab tribes, whose tribal land extends across borders. What does that future territory look like? Those who escaped into Chad tell us it requires the annihilation of the Masalit, with a domino effect for other African tribes native to this land. Those young enough to survive, enslaved. Mahadi, who's only 16, gives us a glimpse into what's happening in West Darfur. He was kidnapped by the RSF with his brother and forced to work at a farm. The word slave in Arabic is a racial slur, equivalent to the N-word. So we are bleeping it out in his testimony. Mahadi doesn't know how much they bought him for, but he was eventually taken to another location where he was forced to work. His brother, taken at the same time, was killed by the RSF. Many of those we spoke to are old enough to have been forced to flee to Chad during the previous genocide. To live through that once is a tragedy. Twice in one lifetime is almost more than any human can bear. But who's to blame? Wagner's commander, Yevgeny Prigozhin, is dead. The RSF are trapped behind Sudan's borders. So who is sustaining and supporting them in this fight? Days in the east of Chad hearing stories of enslavement and an attempt to ethnically cleanse the Masalit, we've come to the Chadian capital and Jemena. We've gotten word that high-level military whistleblowers and politicians want to talk to us. They say they have critical information and evidence about who, beyond Russia's Wagner, is supplying arms to the RSF. Information to help us understand how it all adds up. Most ended up too afraid to come on camera. But Yaya Delugero, leader of an opposition party in Chad, wants to speak out. He believes the Chadian president is allowing his country to be used by the Emiratis to supply arms to the RSF. We have a lot of uh, witnesses, uh, the delivery or, uh, of uh, weapons. But when people try to denounce this one, um, they changed their strategy, saying that they are de delivering medical services. Do you have evidence? Could you share that with us? Yes, of course. I have all uh, all type of uh, pictures. These are the weapons. 
Jeru says that these pictures were given to him by whistleblowers working at the airport. He says they show arms flown in from the UAE. But the Emiratis say that their operations are humanitarian in nature and that their field hospital seen here in this video is helping the local population and refugees. Even though the vast majority of refugees are hundreds of miles away in the south, where we found no direct Emirati presence. The Emiratis are a key US ally and integral to the ongoing peace negotiations between the two warring parties in Sudan. If they're delivering supplies to the RSF, that role becomes disingenuous at best, duplicitous at worst. CNN has uncovered that in the last four months after the civil war began in Sudan, as many as 109 flights left two UAE airports and traveled to Chad, to Amjedis, a highly unusual route. You can see those flights in video and stills provided by whistleblowers. Eyewitnesses at Amjeras told CNN that after the arrival of many of these flights, they saw vehicles loaded with weaponry crossing over to Al Zurug in Sudan, where there is an RSF base. And it's not just the Emiratis using Chad, it's also Wagner, expanding its network and reach. Prigozhin may be dead, but Wagner's supplies and the support to the RSF continue still. We uncovered evidence that Wagner trucks laden with arms from a Russian plane crossed through Chad en route to the same RSF military base in El Zuruk, where you can clearly see here over 100 trucks newly arrived at the base. Both Russia and the Emirates have a history of supporting the RSF, more specifically their commander Himeti, through a series of financially beneficial arrangements, including the illegal sale of Sudan's gold for arms. If Himeti does win the war, at the very least, both Russia and the Emirates would have strategic access to the Red Sea, access to Sudan's gold and mineral wealth, and increased political sway. But at what cost? We still don't know how many people have lost lives, how many have lost loved ones. And as the war rages on, it's impossible to count. We do know millions have been forced from their homes, not knowing if and when they will get to go home. They are paying the true cost for this fight for power and influence. I am among the lucky ones. We were able to evacuate my parents to Cairo, as well as my beloved uncle who ran out of heart medicine. But so many others remain trapped in this geopolitical power game, playing out still six months on, while the world chooses to look the other way. Since Nimmo was last in Sudan to report on this story, the RSF has now seized control of cities in western Darfur, which has only intensified the ongoing battle. Thanks for watching the whole story. I'll see you next Sunday. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. 
With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support.